This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. There must not be any middle ground for free speech. Even in the university, and maybe especially there, hate speech must be allowed. This is the position of Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of the School of Law at the University of California at Berkeley, period. He gives us a trenchant analysis of the speech debates and articulates his position that although free speech is not absolute, hate speech must be protected. I'm very pleased today that I'm sitting here with Erwin Chemerinsky, who is the Dean of the University of California at Berkeley School of Law. So thank you for making time today. My pleasure. It's great to talk with you. I really appreciate it. It's the third day of classes at UC Berkeley for the law school students, so you have a busy week. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time. You've written a very incisive um, and important book on these controversies around speech on campus called Free Speech on Campus with Howard Gilman, who is the chancellor at the University of California at Irvine. And you've written a lot of other articles and chapters on constitutional law, federal civil procedure, etc. And I wanted to start out by asking you a very specific question. I've read one of your other books, which I find equally important and incisive, which is The Case Against the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So in The Case Against the Supreme Court in 2014, you say that the, courts, the Supreme Court's role is really twofold. It has a lot of different functions, but two of the important functions are to protect the rights of minorities and to guard against the kind of hijacking or appropriation of the Constitution by political majorities. This is clearly a topic that the country is thinking about on a daily basis because we now have several parts of government in the hands of one party. And in that book, you ultimately say, I don't want to give a kind of failing or passing grade in the Supreme Court from one political perspective. I'm looking at the entire history of the decisions, and you come down by saying you don't think the court has really done as much as it could have in protecting the rights of minorities or guarding against the majority taking over the Constitution. After having read that book, I kind of thought you would write a book on free speech and say, there's the law, 
This is how the current court interprets the First Amendment. These are the guidelines, particularly around hate speech. But I would say we could do better. But you do something slightly different in the free speech book. Could you talk about, we can get back to the case against the Supreme Court, but in your free speech book, you actually say we're doing okay on how we approach speech on campus. The two books have quite different focus and emphasis. The former book, The Case Against the Supreme Court, was really meant to be an assessment of how the Supreme Court has done over the course of American history. Its thesis, as you say, is that the court has often failed, often at the most important times, often in the most important incidents in American history. Free Speech on Campus is meant to be a totally different book. It's not primarily about the Supreme Court. It's not primarily assessing how courts are done. If there was any audience that we had in mind for this book, it's much more college administrators, college faculty, college students. And so I think that the most important chapter of the book is chapter five, which we write in a series of, here's what we think colleges can and can't do with regard to speech. We certainly touch on hate speech. We certainly cover the Supreme Court cases with regard to it, but that's not the focus of this book. And the focus of the free speech book, which is, given that we're sitting here at Berkeley, I've interviewed a few of your colleagues and had conversations and you know, I, I know that the freshman class was addressed by the chancellor yesterday who emphasized the importance of free speech for university. So you, you're making a more general argument for the significance of the widest range of expression in the pursuit of knowledge and the truth in an That's academic right. setting. We could leave the legal aspects apart for a moment and say, what is the significance in the university for allowing all sorts of opinions to be expressed? Our central thesis is that all ideas and views can be expressed period. Certainly the First Amendment applies to public universities, and we would say it requires this, but we believe that private universities, where the Constitution doesn't apply at all, should also allow the expression of all ideas and views. We think that colleges and universities, above all, are there for the advancement of knowledge, and you can't have the advancement of knowledge when you say certain ideas and views are beyond the pale. Can I ask you a few clarifying questions sure. on this? So, while universities basically want to examine all possible ideas, there are also a huge amount of ideas that are settled opinion that we have discussed and decided as a kind of in the process of consensus of a community of experts that this is no longer worthy of discussion, doesn't merit further debate. We know that this is how it is. So as we know, in all disciplines, there are standards, and you exercise these standards all the time, and you say not everybody can come here and basically deny proven facts, spread deliberate falsehoods, or just say things that are just not qualified. Because a lot of people would love to come and give a lecture at the University of California at Berkeley or at any other university or private college, but they're just not invited. And no one raises a speech issue around that. So the first process of vetting ideas and of discriminating based on the content and the merit and the value. We draw a distinction in the book, and I think it's a quite important one, between speech in a professional realm versus a non-professional realm. In the professional realm, what a professor writes, what a professor teaches, what a student writes, all of that's subject to content-based evaluation. And so when a professor comes up for tenure, the faculty is going to review the content, the quality of the work. When I grade student papers, I'm evaluating the content, the quality of the work. But then there's a non-professional realm. It's what people are doing on their own time. It's what people are saying on Facebook and in Twitter and in any other media. And for that, 
We believe all ideas and views can be expressed. In terms of who a campus chooses to invite to speak, that's up to the campus. But to the extent that a campus is a, an area that's a public forum, then it can't engage in content discrimination. If student groups are allowed to invite speakers, then we can't say that certain speakers are expressing ideas or views that aren't accepted and beyond the pale. The danger of doing that is segregation was accepted as the law and the right way of life in the South. What have Southern universities had said in the early 60s? We think desegregation has been proven wrong. We're not going to allow those who advocate desegregation to come on campus. Or what if in the 1960s campuses had said that those who advocate the end of the Vietnam War are doing real harm to the country? We're not going to allow that advocacy. To me, the key is that when it comes to the advocacy on campus or the speech of people in the non-professional realm, there can't be discrimination or punishment based on the ideas or views expressed. When you just referred to kind of the early 60s, which is when the free speech movement starts here at the University of California campus, and people are pushing for universities to say, you have to, you have to allow all sorts of expressions in these kind of non-professional spaces. And as you said, without that, we possibly would have lost an opportunity for progress and advancement in this country, especially in the, in the realm of racial equality and justice, which is, which is often, quite often, where these debates are centered on. Mm -hmm. I think what's remarkable is that many, many of the debates around campus controversies touch upon race, and they don't touch about all sorts of other things. They used to touch about gender much more, actually. We lived through the 90s where gender was actually probably more of the kind of flashpoint that ignited these kinds of debates. But when you just said, let's say, the kind of expansion of speech rights benefited of advancement of equality and, let's say, minority rights, that's an argument that's very frequently made. I think a lot of students are saying today, is this really the case? Is this really the case that free speech has always benefited minorities? Or is it the case that free speech rights have now become actually a kind of tool for conservatives and we now have people coming to campuses who are taking the mantle of the free speech movement, who probably share very little of the values of the free speech movement, which were really sort of, you know, more racial justice and equality. And these people are all very conservative and against all sorts of minority rights. So the question is a historical conversation. Why are students or why is a generation not aware that they benefited from this? And you are dean of a law school, so in some ways that's an important question. Speech is protected because it has effects. If speech made no difference, we wouldn't be making it a fundamental right. Those effects can be positive, and those effects can be negative. At times, speech very much helps further equality, and at times, speech is an impediment to equality. And so if you look at the major movements towards equality in American history, women's suffrage, the end of segregation, gay and lesbian rights. Free speech was very much at the core of all of those. And it's hard to imagine any of those things happening without free speech. But at the same time, speech can interfere with equality. Hateful speech causes injuries. It causes traditionally excluded people to feel unwelcome. And it's a mistake to think that the benefits of speech are only positive ones. The question is, what conclusion do we draw from that? I tremendously distrust giving government officials, including campus officials, the ability to say, this is the truth and you get to say it. This has been proven false and you don't get to say it. History also shows that when you give people the power to censor, they use that power to censor. 
Now you ask the question of, well, many among today's college students want to see more in the way of restrictions of speech. Why? Some of it is laudable. This is the first generation we taught from a young age that bullying is wrong. They've internalized that message. Some of it is this is a generation that really hasn't had to confront suppression of speech. They haven't faced campuses expelling people for being part of anti-war protests or campuses excluding people for being suspected of being communists and the like. You have to remember that for current college students, the anti-war protests that I participated in when I was in college, or the civil rights protests in the 1960s, or as long ago for them as World War I was for me. So they probably don't have the living history. To stay with this point for a moment, to think they don't have a real experience, I wonder whether they have a sense of something. And I think from my sense of the campus protests and the controversies, I think, and this is just an, an opinion, clearly not a fact, I think it's quite directly linked to Black Lives Matter and to the advent of social media. And I think that this link between the Black Lives Matter movement, which is the social movement for equal justice, and social media, which allows people to express all sorts of opinions, has given a generation a sense that actually protesting police violence is not exactly met with no opposition from the government. If you look at the riots in Ferguson. It wasn't that people went into the streets and everybody applauded and people said, you have a right to demonstrate. Secondly, I think social media changes something that some people who are very active on social media actually experience the world as saying, there's not just no restriction of hate speech. There's actually, this is what really is what the country is talking about. So there's a huge amount of it. And when you say something else, you actually quite quickly silenced. So two separate things. So it, I'm just curious. And of course, a, we're talking about sort of the impressions, or it's kind of more the sentiment and the culture. I think I disagree with your first premise that this is a result of Black Lives Matter, or Black Lives Matter has more brought this to consciousness. In the early 1990s, over 350 college and universities adopted hate speech codes. Now, all that came to court were declared unconstitutional. I think this is the issue of hate speech on campus just resurfacing. Now, it's resurfacing now because of other things that are going on. I think Donald Trump's election has just turned over a rock and has made it possible for people to say things they otherwise wouldn't have said in public. I think Donald Trump has changed the nature of rhetoric and made it much more coarse and vitriolic. I think Black Lives Matter is a part of that. And so... I'm just saying that I think it's a complicated story as yeah, to why yeah. the issue of hate speech has resurfaced now. Right. I wouldn't reduce it to just Black right. Lives Matter. Right, right. It's probably not a causal relationship. I just wonder whether that informs a kind of an awareness on the part of people. And it also, I do think, the one positive thing, very clearly positive, of social media, it democratizes what people right. can participate in the public forum. So suddenly what we live through is that the entire country has a hard time not acknowledging or bearing witness to a kind of injustice that before that people could say this didn't happen or we've moved beyond this as you write in one of your books which you you fault there was an assumption we live in a post-racial America and then I think people saw on the media initially social media then mainstream media post-racial is probably really a kind of dangerous illusion that we didn't get there yet I agree very much that social media and the internet more generally 
have tremendously democratized the ability of people to reach a mass audience. It used to be to reach a large audience, you need to be rich enough to own a newspaper or get a broadcast license. Now, anyone who's got access to a modem or even a smartphone can reach a huge audience. That has tremendous benefits and allows all of us to participate in a national conversation. But again, there's real costs to it. We have a real problem with very personal information being quickly disclosed to a large number of people. You're seeing the name for it on campuses, doxing, that when defamatory information is spread about somebody, it's not only going to go to a much larger audience than ever before, but it's there in a much more permanent form. If a newspaper said something defamatory about me today, there would be consequence my reputation. But day after tomorrow, that newspaper on the bottom of a birdcage. Now that news story is on the internet for people to find about me, however false the story forever. Right. So there's a kind of democratization, but of course you can also turn this into a kind of mobbing or a kind of sort of amplification, so things get amplified without any more editorial vetting function that say this is right. false or this is correct or incorrect, this is true or not true, it's just, it just gets forwarded and promoted. I argued a case in the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit in May of this year. I'm awaiting a decision. I represented a group of women at Mary Washington University who were targeted for harassment over social media. They had initially opposed the campus allowing fraternities and sororities, and then some of the football players on campus began targeting them. Over 700 quite ugly messages were sent to them. Some threatened them with murder and rape, and they wanted the campus to do something, and the campus said, it's speech over an anonymous medium. We don't have anything to do with it. We don't do anything. And they sued, and that's the question is, does the university have some obligation? And my argument, despite how much I believe in free speech, is that there is a university obligation. In this case, this is a useful example. It touches upon safety, incitement, or civility, and kind of respectful discourse. What's Not civility. I mean, yeah. I don't think campus should get in the business of monitoring okay. or dealing civility. In this instance, there's no doubt that they were subjected to threats and harassment. And at the very least, the campus has to do something to protect students from harassment. Mm -hmm. So my argument was the campus officials could have condemned the speech. Instead, the campus posts it on a website saying they couldn't do anything about the speech. And if, when you call this speech, which is posting about targeting certain students' harassment, you're saying there is a, there is a way to determine this constitutes harassment, systemic, pervasive, targeted. Right. We have a definition for harassment. Right. It's not just we can argue word. over what's right. harassment. I would say whatever your definition, this crossed the line. True threats are not protected by the First Amendment. We can argue right. over what's a true threat. But there's no doubt that some of these messages specifically mentioned that's an important rape and point. murder. Sorry, that's an important one you've made several times to so say this idea that there's absolute speech rights, that the First Amendment is an absolute principle, does not mean that certain things cannot be regulated. It does not it sort of impinge on the right of for people to speak that through threats or harassment when defined in this way you just described it. Right. If we go back to the Can I just say, yes, absolutely. free speech is not an absolute it's never been an I'm going to underline this because, to be honest with you, I read a lot, as you do. So many people say free speech is an absolute, and I think they misunderstand something. Could you say a little bit more of what you sure. mean by that? Long ago, Oliver Wendell Holmes said, there's no right to falsely shot fire in a crowded theater. Of course that's right. We can come up with countless examples. 
Imagine an employer says to an employee, sleep with me or you're fired. And when the employee sues for sexual harassment, the employer says, it was just speech. The employer will lose. Imagine somebody lies in court under oath, and when they're tried for perjury, they say, it was just speech. That, of course, will lose. There are instances where the government can, when it must, punish speech. And so it's a mistake to say that even though speech is a fundamental right, that that makes it an absolute. It's not. It never can be. Your first example, Oliver Wendell Holmes, when he says uh, yelling fire falsely in a theater. The falsely gets dropped out. So actually one of our most distinguished national magazines recently published an article on free speech from the summer, and they said, yelling fire in a theater is unconstitutional. I said, no, actually yelling fire is important when there's a fire. Exactly. And it was kind of funny. This is a major journalist writing on speech and gets the example wrong because he just wants to mark, well, this we can put aside has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But what you're saying, actually, it's worth thinking about these things carefully so they don't bleed into other restrictions that are not helpful in the university. If we go again to this example, in the early 90s, I feel we've lived through this. I was in college in the early 90s. I lived through the culture wars the first time. It was about obscenity, largely. It was about pornography. It was sort of, you know, about equality. It was the scholars of you reference, Mary Matsuda, Richard Delgado, mm-hmm. Catherine McKinnon, um, Charles Lawrence, mm-hmm. all these debates which came out of a law school but really engulfed the university. And I wonder whether... So we're living through this again. And in some ways, I wonder whether some of the students are saying, to go back to my earlier question, really, we're still debating whether hate speech is really good for, dem- for democracy, good for education. The truth will win out. Sunlight is the best infectant, disinfectant. And they may say, it doesn't look like that because hate speech is still around. Racism is still around. It didn't clear the air. It didn't get it out of the system. Prohibiting <laughs> hate speech on campus isn't get rid of racism either. It's, right. So it's, let me just say, it may get rid of something else, though. So this is, I think, the point to say. It's a, it won't get rid of racism. They know racism is not going to go away for a long time. But they say, but it may get rid of me having to go to school and being subjected to a climate which may not qualify as harassment because it may not be systemic, pervasive, and targeted, but nonetheless kind of in Jeremy Waldron's word, poisons the atmosphere. So they say, to a me to come to a campus and a speaker spew some racist nonsense, pseudoscience, which he couldn't ever be invited to talk about in the biology department, because he's not an accredited academic, it's just not, it's not fulfilling the equality guarantees of the educational institution. So students, I think, are, are maybe saying something that is tricky because they're saying, why is this being protected more than other things? Well, I don't think it's being protected more than other things, but it is being protected. I think some of why is how difficult it is to find what's hate speech without being unduly vague or overbroad. Any law, any code that regulates speech has to be clear about what's prohibited and what's allowed. No one has found a way of defining what's hate speech with any precision. The famous code at the University of Michigan that got struck down prohibits hate speech if it's stigmatizing or demeaning on the basis of race, sex, religion. What does it mean for speech to be stigmatizing or demeaning? So this goes to, you know, I opened the whole conversation, sort of said they're very different books and you're saying something else. So when you're saying no one has been able to arrive at a useful, usable definition, it's not overbroad and vague, 
some people may say, I'm not dealing with the law, but we could have a Supreme Court that would have decided Boharne is a precedent for something, and the court rulings could have been different in all these cases that are the important, significant cases about speech regulation from the 60s forward. And we could live in a country where actually people would say, burning a cross, everyone in America knows what that means, and we actually regulate that. It's conceivable. I know it's almost unimaginable. It's conceivable in the sense that most European countries have such laws, and yet when you look at the experience of those laws, to me they cause much more pause. So often those laws are used against the very individuals they're meant to protect. When the University of Michigan adopted hate speech code, every prosecution under it, until it was struck down, was against African American and Latino students, the very groups that's meant to protect. When you look at the experience under Europe's hate speech laws, so often they're used against racial and religious minorities. I think the question really is, how much do you trust the government to be able to make these choices? Because if you give the government the power to stop the speech that's found hateful, today it might be things that we're talking about now. Tomorrow, a different government said by a hypothetical president, Donald Trump, could use it in a very different way. And And do you think that the law has been interpreted up to this point in this country in a particular way to actually uphold the status quo and actually protect a certain kind of viewpoint, let's say. So someone could say, I'll take the risk. I'll take the risk to live in a country such as Canada or France or Italy or New Zealand or Germany or the UK, and we will not allow people to burn crosses. So we'll take the risk. Do we think this will be instantly turned around and the next court will rule against you know, black activists? Maybe. They're being ruled against anyway, so there's an assumption, as you know, this idea that the, and this is what, what does it, it open up, I'm not saying we should change the First Amendment, or sort of saying the hypothetical is a hard one because you're saying it could be used against the minorities if it is intended to protect. History shows that it's likely to be used in that way. I think there's so many examples under the hate speech codes in foreign countries in that way. And I'll go to the examples you mentioned. I don't know there's much evidence that the amount of racism or anti-Semitism in these European countries is less because they prohibit hate speech. The hypothetical counterfactuals, we couldn't know, right? We couldn't know okay. whether we would have more or less of, uh, you know, and I think that the measures are very tricky. The studies are very tricky. Do they have more incidents, less incidents? We, we couldn't know. So, and, and to I, return to a university setting, because sure. this is a hypothetical, so sometimes it's interesting to say, so what if a university administrator you know, as you're saying, you wouldn't want to hand someone like that. You wouldn't want to hand her the power to decide because two years later it'll be someone else and they'll decide the other way. But what if the university administrator took the risk and said, it's too expensive, it's too difficult for our community, I will invoke, I'll try harassment, I say it's systemic, I'll try all sorts of ways and say, and what if one judge actually says, yeah, it was okay not to allow this particular person to speak? Because you showed, for example, you excluded dozens of people this year mm-hmm. who weren't qualified just on call and, and shift it into the areas that in your book you demarcate are not quite the right ones to use, but do it deliberately. And what if one judge said, yeah, so-and-so college really didn't have to host this person. What would happen? Do you think that college would then be in a place where say, it's really not committed anymore to what colleges and universities should be doing? I think that if a college right now, at least a public university, would try to exclude hateful speakers, it would get sued and it would lose. Mm-hmm. There was an incident on this campus last year where the chancellor convened a panel of faculty members 
to talk to the community in advance of the so-called free speech week when Milo Yiannopoulos and Ben Shapiro and Ann Coulter and Steve Bannon were supposed to come. And one of my colleagues began the panel by saying that the main problem in our country is white supremacy and that Chancellor should exclude hateful speakers. There was resounding applause. In the question and answer period, one of the students spoke eloquently, powerfully, and said, she feels threatened when there's hateful speakers on campus. She wants the chancellor to stand up for the students and exclude hateful speakers, even if the law doesn't allow the chancellor to do this. Resounding applause. I was on the panel, and towards the end, I spoke up, and I said, let's be clear. If the chancellor tried to exclude hateful speakers like Miley Annapolis or Ann Coulter, she would get sued, and she would lose. When Auburn University tried to exclude Richard Spencer, his supporters sued, and they won and secured his right to speak. The campus would have to pay the attorney's fees for the excluded speakers. And maybe the chancellor would be liable for money damages because she's violating clearly established law. Those excluded would present themselves as martyrs and victims. Nothing would be gained. They would get to speak anyway. No one applauded when I said that. <laughs> so let's say we're in this well-reasoned, and I think your book does a great job to actually acknowledge what the students are saying. I think I would put a bit more emphasis on equality and not on feelings or feeling threatened or excluded. I think it's actually probably feeling an equal participant in the community. But let's say this is the status quo. You have a list of recommendations at the end, what universities can do. A lot of it is very sensible to actually demonstrate the university has other values. The one thing I was curious about, and then I'm sure this is in the book or I, should the university also say at that moment, we're not just counter-programming and we disagree with these viewpoints, it's all, of, it's all ideas and language and words. We actually have committed resources. We actually uphold, um, without now invoking another legal, legal category, programs for students who are being targeted here to be at this university to succeed. I don't want to say affirmative action because it's a legal issue, but sort of say we have resources and not just language. And I think this is the part where universities can speak through their actions, not just through their words. And I think just as campus has the obligation to protect speech, so do the obligation to create an inclusive learning environment for all students. And there's many things that campuses should and must do to make sure that the campus is inviting, safe for all students. So I don't mean by any stretch to say that this is just about speech. There's also the obligation to create a safe, inclusive learning environment. And with that, I have a four o'clock meeting. I I'm want to sorry. thank you, Dean Shemarinsky. So, Edward Shemarinsky, the Dean of the University of California at Berkeley Law School. Thank you so thank much for you. making time. I greatly appreciate it. And good luck with the fall term of 2018. It's my pleasure. Okay, thank you. Delighted to do it. And I apologize for having to cut us off. Oh, uh, no, no, no problem at all. Thank you so much.